Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast that's raising the bar on craft cocktails. I am your host, Louise Solace, and with me is my very, very talented friend whose masterful cocktail talents are just pure music to my ears. She is a mixtress, DC Gina. That was a very lovely intro. You Thank like you. that? Yes. Normally I am some pitted against something. So <laughs> no. I, I love this one. That was a good one. <laughs> so Gina, you know the month of April is known for a lot of things, right? We've got Easter, spring, April showers, which we know means May flowers. Um, but it's also Earth Month, Stress Awareness Month, and uh <laughs> Alcohol Awareness Month. So I'm wondering if there's a correlation between those two yes. things, possibly. I'll huh? take Earth Day for the win, April 22nd. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Um, so here's something else, though. Did you know it is also Jazz Appreciation Month? Isn't Jazz Fest this month in New Orleans? Or am I wrong? I feel like I'm right. You yeah. probably are. See, again, I only know things around drink festivals. There so you like, go. Oh, can I get super <laughs> hammered at Jazz Fest? Great. I love it. So, Jazz Appreciation Month is also known as Jam. Oh. So you think about that? Yeah, yeah. So, Jam is intended to stimulate and encourage people of all ages to participate in jazz, to study the music, attend concerts, listen to jazz, read books about jazz, articles about jazz, practice your jazz hands, or maybe just listen to this podcast that's going to be all about jazz. So it'll be jazzy. If it's you gonna will. be jazz, jazz, jazz. I mean, I could do jazz hands. My kids are in jazz. Can we give you one of those? I'll, I'll nail that. You're ready for jazz. Oh, I'm ready. Jam. I'm ready. You're ready for wide, some jam. Wide five. Wide five, everybody. <laughs> well, then you're lucky. You're lucky that you love a little bit of jazz because today's designated drinker is the man behind Jazz Appreciation Month, which he introduced in 2001. He's renowned curator. Emeritus at the Smithsonian, a frequent Wall Street Journal contributor, an acclaimed speaker, ready for this, the esteemed Duke Ellington biographer, and a Grammy-nominated producer and author, the founder of the Smithsonian Jazz Masterworks Orchestra, and an accomplished musician himself. That's a mouthful. That's a lot. I needed to breathe between there. He's Dr. John Edward Hasse. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Welcome. It's a great honor to be with you both. Oh my gosh. <laughs> So great. You're, you don't look like you're old enough to do all of those things, so there you go. <laughs> so yeah, we're rubbing elbows with a legend. I know. I love that. You just, yeah, you're like, ah, just who is this guy? I mean, I only get to see the short the short biography of you, yeah. and then like what you like and what you don't like, <laughs> and then it's like a mystery who you are to me. So like, And I try not to look, because then it, I don't want to... Yeah, I'm supposed to say that I don't know what's going on, <laughs> which I don't, so it's more genuine, right? Yeah, but you see, but she's the master behind the bar. I don't know anything about that. And you see, there, make you go. A good, a good there you go. It's balanced, like music, right? Right. So, before we go any further and get into all this name dropping you're about to do, John, uh, <laughs> let's talk about. I'd really love to talk about how your journey to becoming this jazz aficionado all started. Was jazz just in your blood, in your soul? Well, I started picking out tunes on the piano when I was about five, and had about uh, 14 years of classical piano lessons and wow. uh, started a little jazz trio in high school. And um, by then I'd heard live jazz and the bug just bit me. I thought, this is something new. Musicians creating music, new music, at the speed of thought. I love that. Music that had never been heard before because they were improvising new melodic and rhythmic lines. And it just seized my imagination. and. Um, in college, I was lucky enough to study in New York City for 
five, six months with two esteemed jazz pianists and um, kind of went from there. That's crazy. At five, Gina, I think I was just eating crayons. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I was doing something disgusting. Picking out tunes on the piano. Yeah. I mean, mine was be like, bang, bang, bang. It's the best yeah. I would have. 100%. I was sitting in my father's restaurant, like in the corner someplace, playing with dough balls because <laughs> my parents had uh, t- a pizza place in Queens. <laughs> So maybe we were maybe maybe we were there at the same time. And it was like <laughs> that, that kid that they're like, go in the back. I'm like, go in the back. <laughs> That's amazing. Anyway, keep going. Keep. No, I, I just it, I just think about the fact that you just started at five. Were you, did you come from in like a musical family then? Well, my parents told me uh, much later that when they were uh, youngsters, they both studied the violin. Oh. And when my dad practiced, the dog would howl along with him. <laughs> <laughs> and then my three older sisters all studied piano, and I'd fall asleep at, at night to them practicing Mozart at our, at our sturdy, upright piano. And awesome. um, we didn't have a lot of money there for a while. There were nine mouths to feed on one high school teacher's salary. Wow. Um, but we did uh, have a, a radio and played a lot of radio and a few records, and my mom said that when I was just just a, a toddler, I would stand in the cradle, hold on to the railings, and sway back and forth to the music on the radio. So I, I guess it was uh, kind of maybe in my blood, but also in my upbringing. Yeah, that's amazing. That is, do you uh, do any of that with your daughters? you play violin with your daughters? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I am terrible at music and singing, and I will never grace you with that horribleness that I um, produced from my mouth. So... <laughs> I will, I will never do that. My, um, my daughters are like obsessed with that show Wednesday, Adams, the new Wednesday show. So she plays the cello. So they're very interested in this cello thing. Uh-huh. And, I said, and I said, oh, okay. And I said, my daughters are like, you know, they're only eight and nine. And I started laughing at them. I was like, yeah, okay, we'll do it. And then they're like, mom, do you ever see how big a cello is? I'm like, yeah, it's bigger than you. But yeah, they're like that. They're like, it's crazy. You have to learn the violin. I'm like, yep, yep, yep. So... I feel like I have a lot of um, money coming my way of like, get this thing for us so we cannot do it. But, <laughs> but uh, I played the clarinet. You did? Yeah. Can you imagine? Like the- jazz clarinet or clarinet? Isn't there, there's a difference. Um, there's like jazz flute and flute. There's like jazz sax and then sax. I just look like a regular clarinet. I don't know. I just like I was in middle school and I can't even my whole point is I just can't imagine that my mother let me start that because that squeak and squeal when you first learn to make the play the clarinet every kid goes through that it's it's a not easy but yeah she uh I, I think I played for about probably I guess most of middle school so that would have been three years and then I've never touched one since <laughs> You know, I studied clarinet as well. Did you? Clarinet, piano, and violin, and uh, only stuck with the piano. Yeah. Those other two are, I think, much harder to learn. Yeah, I, I'm sure. Pursing your lips and, you know, I don't know. It's a lot. It's a lot. Did you play any music? Music? No. Music, no. Musical instruments? No. I, I, I begged my mother to, like, join, like, in fifth grade, like, I want to do flute or something, right? And, like, I went for, like, I don't know, two four morning school classes, and I was like, this is not for me. Because <laughs> it was, like, way too early. Now, if it was at night, I would have been, I would have excelled. But it was that morning thing. I just can't do it. But I don't know. My daughter went to chorus this morning, and I dropped her off, and she's like, you know, she goes, I don't know, she loves it. So whatever. We'll see what happens. So, John, how did... So I'll you, drop her off with John. I'm yeah, there you go. There, there you go. go. She'll, you'll have yeah, a, some lessons. I'm like, here, take this little girl. <laughs> she would like John something. to be our friend, though. Yeah, I know. <laughs> She's very lovely and rude. But. <laughs>
so college, going, went through college all the way through, uh, through college in music. I did. And what was the plan? Well, I wasn't sure then, but eventually when I got to graduate school, I wanted to become a college professor like my dad was. And, um, but I found there weren't teaching positions for me. So That's crazy. Um, in not wanting to be unemployed, I applied for this <laughs> program at Wharton, the business school of the University of Pennsylvania, and got in. There were 30 of us, um, recent PhDs in the humanities and social sciences, and they trained us in business, crash training in business. So daily courses in statistics, microeconomics, macroeconomics, management, finance, the whole thing. And I got a job at Procter & Gamble. The marketing uh, marketing gurus of all gurus and yep. uh, was marketing head and shoulders shampoo. Yep. <laughs> he dabbled in my world. Yeah. <laughs> Did you write the melody for that? No, no, no. But um, I think I know that song. Three weeks they had me uh, tracking a $110 million budget, advertising budget and promotion budget for Head & Shoulders. Uh, and it was very interesting. I learned a lot, but after a while I realized I was a square peg in a round hole. They wanted, you know, crunching numbers and make it happen, and I'm good at making it happen, but not crunching numbers. So I was, uh, I left and um, scuffled for a while. Then I got this, uh, this opening came up in Washington at the Smithsonian. I looked at it for a while because it said, Curator, Division of Musical Instruments. You know, I played the piano, but I was no expert on musical instruments, and I kept looking at it. Just before the deadline, I called the head of the search committee. She said, yeah, you should apply. So I applied, and... Um, Anyway, they brought three of us in for all-day talks and interviews, and I guess I just fooled them. <laughs> <laughs> fooled them for 34 years. Yeah. <laughs> A mere 34 years. Wow. So, you see, just testament. Just fake it till you make it. I would, uh, <laughs> that's amazing. You've been with the Smithsonian for 34 years. Until I stepped down uh, to spend more time with my bride. Aww. Yeah. That's lovely. Yeah. You recently married or? We got married in 2016 after knowing each other a year. Oh, we met on Match.com. Oh, look oh at that. Gosh. And we never would have met had it not been for that, that site. Um, and uh, I wanted to spend more time with her. And so I stepped down. I'm still associate. I have an office. And I'm curator emeritus. But um, my schedule is completely my own which is just great. What does emeritus mean? I was just going to say the same I'll thing. What I'll is ask. the difference? It's an honorific. In the case of the Smithsonian, they can't take it away. It's a lifetime honor. And wow. it means, um, in my case, I have an office, email, title, business card, keys, access to the museum, uh, library for privileges, all that stuff. But I don't have any real responsibilities. <laughs> That's <laughs> perfect. Pretty nice. <laughs> so you get to go to the secret archives in the Smithsonian and like look at things if you want to. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I I would go with a colleague. Yeah. Of course, you can. Yeah. I, I that's I find that whole Smithsonian um, underground world to be the most fascinating thing ever. One of my friends works at Smithsonian as well, and I was like. Wait, what is down there? And I was like, I can't tell you really what's down there. <laughs> it's very cool. I'm yeah. like, well, I want to be going part of the very cool world. <laughs> He's like, let's on a tour. He's like, you have to have a job there. I'm like, well, they don't have a bartender section in Smithsonian yet. <laughs> but if they want to, I mean, they do have Julia Childs. I mean, they could have some bartender stuff. That'd yeah. be fun, right? 
Let me get this too, and we can like look at that kind of thing. Yeah. I just want to see what's down there. I hear, I hear that's wonderful. Are you in the castle? No, in the American History Museum. American History. Oh, even better. It's got the remodel, right? It just had the remodel. Yeah, and that's the museum with the first lady's gowns, Julia mm -hmm. Child's mm -hmm. kitchen, yep. the Muppets, the yep. Ruby slippers, yep. Dizzy Gillespie's trumpet, you know, George Washington's Revolutionary War uniform. All these national treasures are there. Yes. Were you excited? Can I ask you a question about like um, all music, or can we only talk about piano? No, uh, it was a job as music curator. It was my decision to go mostly uh, for jazz uh, because I felt it was the most consequential, innovative, and vital musical tradition invented in the United States. But uh, you know, they, they gave me freedom to pretty much pursue what I wanted to, and that was another great thing about the job. Just great. Do you feel like um, I love jazz, I love jazz because it's like the underlying of a lot of hip hop music and then and rap and all the, like the um, melodies are like used in there and laid down, but like so I find it very fascinating. Like um, um, Lizzo, right? I find her very fascinating, and you know she borrowed um, the the crystal flute from the um, Library, Library of Congress, Congress yeah. right? right? Now the Smithsonian Library of Congress are separate, correct? They are. Yeah. So like, do you have like, so my, here's my point of this whole thing. Well, I do love Lizzo in case she ever listens to this podcast, but <laughs> do you find like that kind of like the fact that like, you know, you have like these hip hop artists now and stuff like that starting to bring in more of, um, you know, flutes and, and saxophones and stuff like that, right? Do you feel like there's like a new, like a, a renaissance of people listening to more classical and like jazz and like more like, like learning, like younger, younger interest in the music? Yes, I think it's really it's two things. It's, um, you know, like everything else in our society, music constantly changes, constantly changes. And so back in the 60s or the 50s, let's say, um, if you were growing up, you'd, you'd probably gravitate either to rock and roll or maybe to jazz, which was pretty big back then. Yeah. And today, um, you'd be likely to gravitate to hip hop or maybe rap or some more recent style. Um, so one could argue that hip-hop has diminished the audience for jazz, but you could also argue that it's increased it because uh, it's sampled uh, yeah. Herbie Hancock and you know, Sonny Rollins and all these great masters. And um, so people are curious about what came before. Yes. Yeah. And you know, Esperanza Spaulding, who's this wonderful bassist and composer and uh, singer, uh, spent some time at our museum, and she's, she's Eclectic. She works with all these genres of music, and she um, held John Coltrane's manuscript in her hands wow. for *A Love Supreme*, his greatest composition. And she gasped. She practically levitated off the floor. She was so excited, and um, she was to to hold John Coltrane's manuscript, to hold Duke Ellington's manuscript in her hands. She said was like a privilege of her lifetime. And well, she would have you to thank for most of that Duke Ellington collection, correct? Well, I, I led the effort, but you know, in a museum, practically nothing is a solo act. It takes a team or a, or a village. Sure. And uh, it was my privilege to work with so many great teams, but I, yeah, I, I guess I would say I started it. So how were you able to explain to our listeners, the other day he told me this little thing about Duke Ellington collection. Will you expound on that, how you came up, came up on it? Sure. Well, Duke Ellington uh, was born and raised in Washington, mm -hmm. spent his first uh, third of his life here, moved to New York and lived in 50 years in New York City. 
he was, in my opinion, the greatest all-around American musician. Wow. Composer, band leader, conductor, accompanist, arranger, orchestrator, uh, musical thinker, and spokesperson. I mean, we've produced so many great musicians in this country, but I don't think anybody did all those things so brilliantly as Duke Ellington did. And in 1985, I heard that his archives were still available. Nobody had taken them. They were sitting in an unheated, unair-conditioned oh warehouse in Manhattan. Good Lord. And uh, so a colleague and I went up to look at them, and they were, they were, there was mildew setting in on some of the tape recordings. Uh, some of the music had just been rifled through, and we thought, oh, this is a national treasure. It has to get into a safe repository. And then began a three-year process of getting uh, funding from Congress and acquiring it and dealing with uh, the attorneys. Ellington Estate couldn't donate it because he owed back taxes oh. to the IRS. Wow. So we ended up doing what's in the museum business called a, quote, bargain sale, where we came up with some of the value, you could say a purchase, and they donated the rest of the value. So a, a sale slash donation. And um, it's been there since 1988. And people have come from all over the world to use that collection. Whitney Marsalis spent two days just looking at the scores. And one day I was standing over him. And he looked up at me and says, Duke. And he looks down. And he studies the scores some more. And he looks up and says, Duke. He was just blown away by being able to unlock the mystery of how Ellington composed for the various voices in his orchestra. Wow. Something that had not been possible before because these scores were locked away. Nobody could get to them. And people have come from all over the world. There was a, a man from Moscow who had been wanting to come to the United States all his life. He couldn't until the Soviet Union fell, about 1991. Mm -hmm. Finally, he got permission to leave the country, went to New York, uh, the jazz capital of the world, and then down to Washington to see what there was in Ellington came to our archive, and we asked, he asked if we had anything from Ellington's tour of the Soviet Union in 1971. We looked, we did. There was a three-page handwritten letter that he had written to Duke, expecting never to see it again. Oh my he God. couldn't make copies because photocopiers were not uh, yeah. available yeah. to individuals. He gasped, he stood up, he looked up at the ceiling and he waved his arms and said, now this is an archives. <laughs> I'll never forget that. Wow. That's amazing, right? Like, you you know, someone to keep all those things together and like, yeah. like from, I mean, I don't ever want to see my cookbooks. It's like, if I die and someone wants to like look at those recipes, good luck. Because it's a disaster. It's a straight up disaster. It's everywhere. It's wow. written on everything and every little scrap. That's amazing. Cookbooks. You mentioned cookbooks. I should tell you about Ella Fitzgerald's cookbooks. Yes. In 1988. Also, I love her, just so we know. Oh, Ella Fitzgerald. I mean, like, like some serious, I have some serious music of hers. I love her. You know, I think she's, her, her appeal is almost universal. I've heard people say, I can't stand Sinatra or I can't stand Miles Davis or whoever. I've never heard anybody say, I can't stand Ella Fitzgerald. She cuts through all the genres, all ages, all categories. Um, in 1988, she came to the museum to get an award from a local jazz festival, and I had the occasion to meet her backstage. And 
we locked eyes and just really connected right away. And, um, Were you smitten? <laughs> yeah, I was. I was. And I wrote her a letter the next year. I said, you know, we can't obviously put you on display, but we'd like to honor you, and we'd like to um, request you donate some of your archives and memorabilia. Didn't hear anything. I forgot that I'd even written a letter, and six years go by. 1996, she dies. Six weeks later, I get a call from a man in Los Angeles says he's her attorney. Would we be interested in Ella Fitzgerald's archives? Would we, I said. And so wow. three of us flew out there, and they wanted us to go through everything of hers in her, in her office, in her home. And um, there in the living room, there was a little end table. There was a drawer that was kind of stuck. I kept pulling on it, and all these papers popped out. There in the back of the drawer was a number 10 business envelope to Ella Fitzgerald from the Smithsonian. No. And I thought, well, who wrote her from the Smithsonian? I pulled out the letter, opened it. It was my letter. <laughs> she never answered, but she didn't throw it away. And she told her lawyer she'd like her things to go to the Smithsonian. So you never know the power of a single letter. Yeah. It turned out wow. she had this huge cookbook collection, but she didn't cook. She liked to read cookbooks, but she didn't like to cook. <laughs> oh my gosh. So the Ella Fitzgerald Foundation offered us everything, but the cookbooks went to uh, Radcliffe College in Boston because um, they specialize in uh, women's literature and cookbooks, and we got everything else, including um, 60 cubic feet of archival materials, uh, six or seven of her Grammys, wow. uh, this uh, beautiful, uh, coat uh, by Don Loper and uh, her white um, horn rim glasses yeah. and you know, just lots of cool stuff. And we've had a couple of exhibits on her at the museum. That's she, amazing. She's forever. Ella's forever. That's amazing. Oh, that's so cute. Uh, yeah. Uh, Ella's forever. This might not sound appropriate, but it was meaningful to me. I actually named my black lab. If everyone knows on the show or listens to the show, I have labs. And Charlotte's sitting right here on the floor. So if it's heavy breathing, it's not me. <laughs> it's Ella. I mean, it's Charlotte. Um, Ella, when I rescued my little, my first little black lab, um, her name was Nalu. I lived in Hawaii, and I was like, that means wave in Hawaii. And I was like, oh, they might have a dog named Wave. So hanging out with her about 30 minutes trying to figure out her name and I decided I really wanted a really strong black woman's name so I named her Ella as after Ella Fitzgerald <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if her whole family would find that as an honor but I did <laughs> <laughs> that's um that's pretty funny actually yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's she's lovely she's I mean I can't even imagine like how you um a day, right? So yeah. just walk in, and be like, oh, let's let's just like think about the music, and like separate it note by note. Like that's wild. So you compose, right? Is that like, is that right? No, I've, I've written a couple pieces, but I would never agree to the term composer. <laughs> no. So uh, so wait, you? I'm sorry. Didn't you say that he leads? Uh, am I wrong? Well, he was founder of the jazz uh, Miss Smithsonian Jazz Masterworks Orchestra, though. Oh, okay. So, so. you're it's the conductor. No, right. no, 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 just no. I came up with the idea and uh, made a case for it and helped uh, the Museum Lobby Congress to get funds and authorization to start it and uh, oversaw it. It's concerts, it's fundraising, it's, uh, you know, um, program booklets, uh, all that stuff for about, uh, about nine years. Wow. And wow. it has, since 1990, 
One performed all around the world, in, in Egypt in front of the Sphinx and the pyramids, in Moscow and Tokyo, the Monterey Jazz Festival, the Apollo Theater in Harlem, all over. It's, a, it's really a national treasure. Absolutely. That's amazing. Yeah. I, why have I never, I've never done that. I, yeah, I, I feel like you live in Washington and you miss it. Yeah. Like it's so much going on all the time and majority of things in Washington DC are free. And like, you know, when it comes to like the arts and stuff like that, or like it's very nominal amounts of money. Yeah. And like you forget that like you can do all this we stuff We just here. take it for granted. You really do, because when you go to like anywhere else, even New York, you know, New York State, wherever, you're paying to see all these things. Well, it's also because you go to those other places with intention. You're gonna get here, we live our day, our life day to day, and I am absolutely equally uh, guilty of that, of overlooking national treasures, as you put it, absolutely, that we could, we could easily do on a Tuesday night, if we're like yeah. Wednesday night. Yeah. You know what else I like to do on oh, a yeah. Tuesday or Wednesday night? A tip. I love your tips and tricks on those nights. <laughs> <laughs> so what you got today, Gina? So kind of excited, you know, it's finally spring, I'm feeling good about it, but um, it's gonna sound silly, right? I want you to go get something at the camp. Interesting, right? So welcome to the world of the Loviberry. Now, the Loviberry is a uh, you know, it's used traditionally in Chinese and uh, Thai cooking, and it's like really quite lovely, but what it's really also used for is in medicine, in traditional medicine. And they call it sort of a secondary name, Rolf Dragon Vine. And what it, it looks like, a lot like a lychee, right? You're like, oh, I see it before, it's a lychee, it's a lychee, 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 tomato, tomato, whatever. But, uh, Normally it has like a black um, pit in there, like a little bit of fruit, so it does look like an eyeball, which is kind of a little disturbing, but I kind of love it in the same sense. But what's amazing about this fruit is that it is not like the lychee, it's not perfumey and sweet, which I totally love. This is its own fruit, and really when it's like, it's um, like, you know, a little bit musky and tart, and kind of eats much, you know, like a, like a water chestnut, but how we use it in cocktails is muddling it uh, and then you're going to just use that flavor profile that comes from it and it pairs really really lovely with our friend the lime now lime season is now you're in your grocery store and you see that lime's over center five for a dollar oh my gosh it's lime season so these two little guys together delish um you can use it in cocktails like that cooking on um, also using the lunar variants of tea is quite lovely on key for a snack. They are super good for you, you know, good for your vocal cords, throat, um, all that kind of stuff. And you know, if you're a singer or play an instrument, and it might be something you want to be interested in or get into or put it in your mouth. So cheers. So what a funny name for a Loganberry. So, you know, it's such an underutilized um, berry in cocktails, right? I'm sure, you know, like cheese, stuff like that people have yeah. heard of. But a Loganberry is like, you know, it's tart. It has like amazing um, properties for like health and wellness and like for your throat, for your vocals. And it's just like really, really, um, you know, it's amazing, right? So like, you know, they use it a lot in like Thai, um, Thai and Chinese traditional medicine. Oh, interesting. And I like, and I just like, was like, we have to do something with it. So now here you go. And now you know, if you don't know what a Loganberry was, now you totally do. Now you do. Now you do. Now you do. Well, will you use it in your drinks? Absolutely, I, I do all the tips and tricks. In your in your elixir fixers at home? Yes, especially when I'm feeling down, I'll put on some good jazz, grab my Loganberries. <laughs> I, 
I really do believe that when she started. You sound completely wrong out of context. I know. I like to hold my Logan Bears close to my head. No. <laughs> <laughs> They're good for you. I love I love this whole new thing. Like you just find things that are good for you naturally instead of like just all this like chemical things. Like just eat it. Just eat the natural things yeah. that you can. So Gina, where are we gonna go get this tips and tricks? You're gonna go to designateddrinker.show or you're gonna go to designateddrinker.com. Loganberry.show. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. Just go to designateddrinker.show. You'll have my tips and uh, tricks, and you'll learn about the Loganberry in this episode, so it's kind of cool. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So all this Loganberry talk brings us to the end of part one um, with our incredibly fascinating national treasure, in my opinion, that is Dr. John Edward Hassey. Um, but if you're anything like me or anything like Gina, we know one round is just never enough. So go ahead, go top off that drink and get ready for part two of this episode as we continue our jazzy banter. And Gina prepares a, get this, snazzy jazzy cocktail uh, <laughs> that just might make this music man sing. <laughs> I love it. The Designated Drinker Show is produced by Missing Link, a Latino-owned, strategy-driven, creatively-fueled production co-op. From ideation to creation, we craft human connections through intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia, led by skilled caregivers. Now, if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy the theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and everything in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, please don't forget to follow, download, and review the shows. Your reviews help our shows reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company. That's missinglink.company.